The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Now to a woman with an extraordinary story, experiences of direct provision, homeless at 13, pregnant and in care at 14, motherless and a mother at 15, a chartered accountant at 24, a TEDx speaker, the founder of a charity, Empower the Family, and an author and someone named on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Uh, Deborah Samarin, uh, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome to the programme. As you hear that, it's quite an extraordinary life that you've you've lived uh, already and you're still very young. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But just first of all, we, we were listening to the, the report there about businesses and the cleanup and how people were affected by Thursday night. As a as a person as a person of colour living in Ireland in Dublin, what, what's what's your reaction to it? Um, it? It's terrifying. I would say it's probably one of the first times I've been really terrified to walk outside my door. Um, even last night, because sometimes we usually just do the we don't always put the bolt on the door. The bolt was on the door yesterday. Um, I was that scared, um, and it's just it's really sad because. I feel like it's something that's probably been brewing, you know, for for a while now. Um, And I think we need to do more to try and support and educate people um, to make sure it doesn't happen again. When you say you were scared, was that was that the first time you would have felt that afraid from from a point of view of being subject to? some kind of verbal abuse or physical threats or anything Oh, like that. 100%. And even for my son, you know, he was he was really scared for me yesterday. I was supposed to go into work. I was supposed to be hosting a workshop, but he was texting me from 3am, my poor baby, saying, you're not allowed to go to work tomorrow. He was that terrified for me. Um, but thankfully, my bosses had already said as well that we didn't have to go to work because they wanted to make sure that we could stay safe. But it was, I, I, I didn't feel safe to be able to go in and do my job on Friday morning, you know. And, and your son, Liam, he's 14? He's 14, yeah. H- how does he feel about it all? He's terrified. And he, I... I put him in a bit of a bubble. I put him in an international school when he was in fourth class and um, because I really wanted him to be in a diverse environment where he grew to learn to be confident in, in being a, a black man, you know. And um, this is the first, because he's mixed race, he doesn't really think about it the way that I do. I'm, I'm extra worried for him, but because he's in a school and has friends who don't think about it where he doesn't have to deal with anything like this it's the first time he he was scared walking home from the school bus and there was someone across the road who was staring at him and crossed the road and stared him down while he was walking home from school and he was like maybe I should shave my beard so they know I'm a kid and he was just it's terrifying um, for him because he's never had to think about someone being mean to him or hurting him because of the colour of his skin before. And that was yesterday, the day that would have happened, the day after yes. the, the riots. Yeah. And uh, so many people are shocked and appalled by what happened. Is it a massive shock to you? Or do you feel that this is something that, you know, may have been brewing or, or is a very public, uh, a, a public explosion of, of feelings that, that are, are there among, among some people in Ireland? Do you know, um, I kind of compare this to Trump 
um, right, where people saw, were like, oh, no one saw it coming. But actually, there were a number of people who saw it coming. And I think that we've had a growing far right in this country for the last five, six years. I think that we, when we saw the protest that started happening a few months ago, that was kind of an inkling that it's gone beyond a few few people with megaphones in front of, you know, um, buildings. It's gone beyond something that's online. And I think this was the next progression of it. You know, once we started seeing people coming out in droves and saying, I'm I'm anti-migrant, of course, this was the next step. They've been waiting for some sort of a, of a race war. You know, if you read the messaging online, that's what they're expecting to happen. And, and when Thursday happened, it was an excuse to be able to go and and be violent and attack people just because of the colour of their skin. A lot of this messaging is going around on social media. What, what, does your, what does your son Liam, how does he feel about when he sees that kind of hate material online? He feels sad and he feels terrified. And that's heartbreaking for me um, because as I said I've tried to protect him for as much as possible, for as long as possible. Um, and I am terrified for him. I'm... Where his dad is like, we're going to have to walk him back and front from the bus stop. He's ne- he's turning fifteen next next in the next two weeks. He's six foot tall. That was not something we were doing previously or thought we had to do. That's completely different for him. He's not going out with his friends this weekend. He was supposed to go out with his friends last night, but he was happy to come home. He didn't feel safe to stay out late. So it's it's. I think until we really feel a sense of calm and that this has gone away, he's going to keep feeling that way. And that's ter- that's terrible for me because I want him to be a normal child and I want him to feel okay. And he was even saying, like for him, he felt there was no people of colour on the streets when he was going to school or coming home. Like he noticed that, you know. Um, yeah, and that's not what you want your baby thinking about or having to worry about at all. And for you, Deborah. Uh, what age were you when you came to Ireland? I was 10. And you had come from, you had been living in England? I had been living in in Nigeria, so I lived between both countries for um, years growing up. um, And when I came, I was in Nigeria at the time, so... And you came with your mum? So my mum actually came first um, with my siblings and then I came a year later. And what brought her to Ireland and how come you then came a year later? Um, Well... They, my mum and dad had split up. It was a quite difficult split up, and I suppose within Nigerian context, it's not it's not necessarily a fair split when you split up because my dad was the breadwinner, so he was naturally going to get the kids, and she wasn't allowed to see us. So um, she had booked flights to um, to Ireland, and um, she was pregnant at the time. We didn't know. Um, I was unfortunately in hospital that day. It was like the one time I've ever been in hospital for um, food poisoning, and so she essentially kidnapped my siblings from school, um, and. Um, brought them, moved over here and I wasn't allowed to see them for months and obviously I was absolutely devastated about it and I think my dad could see how heartbroken I was to be away from my siblings. Me and my brother are Irish twins so we were insanely close growing up and um, also I was a, you know, preteen, um, and I think he, he realised it was more than he could handle raising me by himself and that was probably unfair. Um, so, so you came over to Ireland then and you were reunited with your, your mother and, and siblings. Yeah. And it was a difficult 
time and your mother was going through uh, a difficult time herself. Yeah, so she had been dealing with depression since she was a teenager, but we didn't know this. But on top of that, she also had fibromyalgia, which is muscle pain. Um, and it was, I suppose she, w- she was in Ireland in a new country with no support network, with four kids under 10, including a newborn. And it was a lot for her. Um, yeah. It was it was a really it was a really dark time for my mum, but it, it's not the same as what we talk about now. If I'd known, you know, to watch out for the signs of someone staying in their room all day and not wanting to come out and being sad and all the time, we didn't talk about depression then. Like I didn't know what depression was then. Um, so even with her suicide attempts when they started happening, you know, even the hospital didn't really know how to handle it properly. You know, she would have a suicide attempt and that same day they would let her walk out of the hospital as opposed to putting her on a hold. So even our own understanding within that system was, was tough. So, yeah, it was a really tough time for her. But all of those psychological difficulties and emotional difficulties she faced, it, it would have, you know, manifested itself at times in, in very negative ways on you when you were a kid. I mean, she, she would lose her temper. Yeah, and I, I've come to, through lots of counselling, kind of understand that she was taking her frustrations on me. It wasn't that she hated me or anything, which is what I taught for a really long time. Um, it's she was in, physically abusive too. She was physically um, abusive. And, and the, the one of the instances when, I, when they finally sought a, a permanent care order for me, she'd actually... Grab. She was so. What she was feeling was that I had abandoned her, and I'd left by going into care. And I was. I'd come home to pick up some of my things with a social worker, and she grabbed me by the hair and whacked my head off a radiator, and that was in front of a social worker. So you can only imagine that when there wasn't a social worker there, it was much worse. Um, but I. I've come to learn that it was she. I think that for her, she felt she was doing the right thing. I think that for her, she didn't realise, I think, how much hurt she was causing. I think it was just that she was in such a dark place herself that it was hard for her to be able to understand the pain that she was causing me. But as a result of that, you you went into care and you would have gone to foster homes and you would have had a lot of um, dealings with social workers. First of all, how what was it like dealing with the system in terms of the social workers that you had and then moving to different uh, foster parents? Um, what I didn't know was until much later, because I, when I was writing my book, I had to request all of my tooth to the records. So growing up, I just knew I had to move from loads of foster homes. I could only stay there for short periods of time and I thought I'd done something wrong and that's why I was moving. So within my first nine months in care, I was in six different foster homes. <laughs> I have a tour of, did a tour of Dublin. Six in how long? In nine months. In nine months? Yeah, so it was in Dublin, it was in Cork, I was in like Athai, Westmeath, it was in so many different places. But I suppose what I then found out from reading through all of my um, care notes was that it was these were only short term places. They were only ever sought to be two week placements because they were hoping I would go back to my mum. So there was care orders that were being taken out for specific periods of time, two months or one month. And then um, once that once that care order was up, if I was told that I had to stay in care, then they would need to find another place because it was only ever arranged to be that short term placement. But nobody told me that someone would just a social worker would just show up with 
you know, literal bin bags for me to put my clothes into and say we're moving. So I it, it there's definitely an element of like abandonment and, you know, um, what's wrong with me I had to work through because not only was I feeling that from my dad leaving me here I didn't understand I was I've always been a daddy's girl feeling that from you know how my mum was treating me and then moving quite a lot um was quite tough as well so even looking back now and doing the bit of research for the book you could see that they might have had a plan for you or something they were working towards but at, at your age and at that time, it doesn't feel like a plan. It just feels the total Chaos. opposite to that. Yeah. Um, and in order to make things, you know, things were to get even more complicated because you 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 were pregnant at only 14. Yeah, so um, one of the times I went into care was an emergency situation and I was over 12. So um, once you're kind of over 12, you're not really like going into a foster care home um, in an emergency situation, they're probably going to try and put you in like an emergency hostel. And so I stayed in an in a emergency um, homeless hostel. And um, then I went to another one that was specifically just for young girls. And after that, thankfully, once I, once I was in a care home that was a bit more settled and safe, I found out I was pregnant. And yeah, that was that was obviously life changing um, and life changing for a number of reasons. You know, the support I had in that care home. That's why I'm always I feel so lucky I got pregnant. Not lucky I got pregnant, but lucky I got pregnant at that time um, and in that care home because the people there went above and beyond to support me, to learn how to be a mom, to learn how to be a mom while juggling, you know, being in school and and to to really encourage me um when I didn't necessarily have a lot of belief in myself, you know, so... And some of that boils down to individuals who were there and their personalities and, and how they felt about you and, and what you could do in your life and so forth and supported you. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you had uh, your son Liam. Yeah. And that changed things a lot inside your head, changed your life, but inside your own head as to thinking about yourself and thinking about your future. A hundred percent. It's not even thinking about myself. It was just thinking all about him and, you know, the type of life I wanted to create for him. Um, I, I think, you know, w one of the things I say about Liam is like he completely saved me, you know, because... I just wanted to create a better life for him. I wanted to create a nice, stable, happy home for him. And that's something I would have been really proud that I had created for him. And when I worked hard, I knew education was my best way of being able to get that independence and that better life for him. So we focused on doing my junior cert. Liam's doing his junior cert this year. And I'm like, if you do not get all A's, I just given birth to you and I did my junior cert so you need to get all A's you know that, that speech is coming out is it <laughs> exactly exactly so was there an opportunity then to rebuild your relationship with your mother um yes which is really nice so um after I had my my son um I suppose to give you an example whenever my mum was violent towards me when my dad was there he was my protector he would step in and say that's enough right but when he when he wasn't there obviously that didn't happen anymore but he we'd always been like me and my dad against my mum if that makes sense you know he was my protector and um when I gave birth to Liam in the hospital I decided I didn't want to breastfeed right very young and I was going to bottle feed my dad is very old and traditional and he was like that child's going to have brain damage if you don't breastfeed him just these like really nonsense things that he had in his head and my mum stuck up for me and said she's really young it's different now 
bottle feeding. There's loads of nutrients in it. It's basically the same. Um, I don't know if it's basically the same, but like she was saying, it was, he's going to be perfectly healthy. And that's a complete switch in you our relationship. You could see a turn. A hundred percent, because that had never been the case. And that really grew with my son. She would come over. Um, she was living in a homeless hostel, but she would come over and cook food for me and my son. She would, well, for me mainly, um, she would mind my son in the mornings while I went to school. She was, she was, yeah, it was, we really got to know each other much better before she passed away. And sadly, she, she died in 2009. She died by suicide. Yes, unfortunately. Um, so I would say that um, it's still something I find, I can't, I still, it, to this day, I still can't believe she's not here. Um, and I just so wish she was because I think that we would have, I think would have been more help. And if she hung on, she would have seen that everything was going to be okay. Um, I think she would be so proud of me and so proud of Liam. And yeah, she's got, she's got three grandkids now, you know, um, and she never got to meet two of them. It's just so sad. So she was, she was, a, a really amazing woman like she had her difficulties she had some bad times that she went on but she was a I attribute a lot of myself in terms of how I carry myself um yeah to, to her you obviously have a huge amount of determination Deborah because you decided in the face of all of that adversity that you you wanted to turn things around for your son Liam as much as as, as for yourself, and at, of all things, you decided to become an accountant. I know. So um, when I was younger, I just always wanted to do accounting. I don't know why. I just like doing budgets. Like I do budgets for fun as a child. Um, and so have you heard all those accountants' jokes? <laughs> They're there for a reason, you know. <laughs> Genuinely, I like really like tax. I don't like not the necessarily. Um, it's not fun paying fifty two percent tax, but um, the the um, calculating and computations and all of the tax rules. Like I love all of that stuff. I love anything to do with numbers. So um, the the piece for me, I suppose, was that I understood if I did accounting as well for my son. You know, by the time he went to secondary school, I'd be able to put him in a really good school because I'd went to a desh school, which is really disadvantaged. And I didn't have options in terms of the subjects I wanted to do. So I wanted to make sure that he didn't have that. He Whatever he wanted to do, he had all the subjects available to him. So you 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 trained, you qualified as a chartered accountant. You got your first job in PwC. I did, yeah. What was that like? That was great. I did my grad uh, placement there and it's great. It's a very collegial kind of environment. Um, um, so I think the majority of the firm are under 35. Um, so as you can imagine, a really fun place to, to train. And then you move to EY, where yes. you work as a senior manager now. Yes. And an extraordinary turnaround. How, how, how did you do it? God, I think the thing is, I just didn't... I think one... I. Counseling, a lot of counseling has been consistent in my life since I was about 14. Um, and having that support to be able to unpack things whenever things do get a lot for me. Um, and it's all about the resilience piece. I don't think resilience means that you have to be able to take everything and put a smile on your face all the time. You need to be able to work through the different issues in your life and be able to come out of that on the other side. That's resilience to me. And were you on your own as a single mum during a lot of that period? Yeah, so I've been a single mum since Liam was born. Um, 
but we Liam's dad would have he, I suppose definitely since I went to college when I was 18 when I moved out of care and, and had to live on my own he's been really involved and we've co-parented um, and I honestly couldn't fault him he is a really amazing dad and he was more upset about what happened to Liam yesterday was, although I was very upset but he was very involved and yeah So you then set up uh, Empower the Family Charity tell me a bit about that Yes okay so um, I was waiting for the bus um, on Baggett Street one day and I end up staring at the Catherine Macaulay statue um, that's just beside the Catherine Macaulay building there and I decided to look it up because I was thinking this is a weird place for a convent um, and um, when I looked up the story about her I heard about how she had been an orphan and she'd worked for her rich aunt and uncle in Kulak which is beside me actually and um, when they died all of their money passed on to her and, you know, she went on and she built this orphanage, this school that's there on Baggett Street still today. And so much good came out of it. And I was just thinking if this woman took the money and ran after having such a horrible life, no one would blame her. But she did something so beneficial to support people who were like her. And I just didn't want to leave this earth without having an impact and doing something to help. And I knew how much having childcare and having accommodation would have really helped me when I was going to college. First of all, it could have stopped me being able to go to college if I didn't fight for those things that I needed. And the things that I got, a lot of the time, I was either lucky or was on an exceptional basis, right? So it's not necessarily an easy path for someone today who's a single mom or even from a disadvantaged background to be able to go to college, to be able to have accommodation, to be able to have childcare and have access to the resources they need to successfully complete university. So that's where Empower the Family came from. I did not set out to, to start it myself. I just wanted to write the idea down, start a petition and hand it over to the Minister for Housing and let him go off and do it. Um, but that I, when I met with um, a number of people within housing, in particular the head of housing for Dublin City Council at the time, Brendan Kenny, who I absolutely adore, um, he he let me know that's not how, how work, building housing works necessarily in this country. You had to become an approved housing body. And that was quite hard. But he really believed in this idea and really believed that I could do it. So I built a board of directors around me and we, we got that approved housing body status through his help. Yeah. And you talk about believing. You, you, you wrote a, a book about, about your own story, your own life called Believing in Me. Doing the research for that, was it actually, it must have been a painful process to revisit yes. a lot of those times. Absolutely. Maybe a very positive one in the end, but not easy. Yeah. Oh, I cried writing nearly every chapter of that book. Like, literally did. Um, especially because some things because I was going through, back through my two so notes, like there's certain things I've actually forgotten about, you know, um, I've blocked out of my memory. So, you know, there'd be incident reports of me being assaulted in a care home and I'm going, geez, and having to be brought to hospital. And I've completely blocked that out until I saw the actual report. Go, Oh, yeah, that actually happened. I couldn't remember it. So it's it's really sad for me to think about the little girl that was going through all of that, you know. Um, and I think I have it in the book and one of the chapters to myself about just wanting to go and like give myself a hug and just wanting to tell myself everything's going to be OK. It's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be this hard. And you are going to be in a situation where you feel safe and you feel loved and you feel cared about. What about the future for you, Deborah? If, if you were sitting back here in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years from now, what would you like to be to be talking about that you've done? What, what, what other things 
interests you? What, it sounds to me as if you're sort of only getting started, really. Well, I want to empower the family. I want us to have one in every county in Ireland where there is university and progress is slow at the moment with Dublin City Council, unfortunately. So we might need to look at other areas, you know, um, and that's the first, I suppose, aspiration. The other one is obviously you know, working through the career ladder within my current company. And I absolutely adore it there. I see so many incredible role models that I would love to, to emulate. Um, so yeah, those, those are really my plans. We have a lot of texts in, Deborah. Here's one. What an inspirational, articulate and empathetic young woman engaging conversation. Her passion is awesome. Deborah, I'm sure many people will agree. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Deborah Samarin, thank you very much. Thank you.